Welcome to Mint, the podcast exploring the Web3 creator economy. I'm your host, Adam Levy, and every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll be showing you what's happening at the corner where crypto meets creators by interviewing Web3's top creative entrepreneurs, collectors, and founders. This episode is brought to you by the composable and decentralized social graph Lens Protocol, who's ready for you to build on so that you can focus on creating a great experience, not scaling your users. Guys, I've talked about this on the podcast before. We as creators need to break through a new paradigm of social networking apps that we control rather than them controlling us. Lens Protocol isn't a social media app. It's designed to let Web3 social apps bloom. Own your content, own your social graph, own your data. Lens Protocol is the last social media handle you'll ever have to create. Now, this is where it gets kind of fun. Listeners of the Mid Podcast are eligible for claiming a Lens profile. Go to the show notes and fill out the survey in order to get allow listed for a Lens profile. You need the secret passcode also linked in the show notes to submit the form, which is valid for the next 24 hours. So go create your profile, go find me and follow me. I'll see you there. This episode welcomes Aaron McDonald, crypto OG and founder and contributor to Altered State Machine, Fluff World, Futureverse, Silo, Centrality, and D64 Ventures. Across the hour, we discuss Aaron's vision for the metaverse, his thesis as a builder and investor, how he uses on-chain data as a project founder, his mental model around user experience and adoption funnels, CC0, and so much more. I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. Mr. Aaron McDonald. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing, my friend? Yeah, I'm good, man. Stoked to be here. Thanks for having me on. Dude, so I'm stoked to have drums, you. Drum stack. Yes. Yes. What do, you, what do you know about drums? Okay. I'm a drummer. Okay. <laughs> well, how long have you been playing for? Um, I think I started when I was maybe 10, somewhere around that age in a Highland Pipe band. Oh my God! Wait, what's the Highland Pipe Band? Give me a little uh, intro on that. (laughs) Scotland, where they have the bagpipes. Oh, I was playing the kettles and the um and the snares. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, so that's where I started. Damn, down to your roots. Where'd you go from there? Um, just like into like all kinds of genre. I never got like into it professionally or anything like that. It's just a hobby. Like, if I like the sound of something, I try and play it. All right. What are what are your favorite bands actually that you're listening to right now? Oh, right now, like I'm, a, I guess I my favorite's like old school. I, I okay. I'm not into like any anything particularly modern, except for probably in the EDM side of things. But um, like old school hip hop, I'm into. Um, I like um, like Nirvana and um. I like Metallica. I like um, like Bush. Like I like those older, like older school. You know, my age when I was growing up and having fun and raging. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, I think I got started on Nirvana as well. I got started playing, um, damn, Led Zeppelin. Like all the all the classic yeah. rock, yeah. art, all all those people. Um, yeah. so I, I feel like I know a thing or two, but that's not why we're here today, even though I think it's a good, a good segue into why we're here today. Very relevant actually to what you're sort of doing in crypto and web three. But I think before we get into that, Aaron, who are you? Give us a quick, uh, intro more specifically. I'm curious to know about your, your history and then how you sort of transitioned into web three. Yeah, man. So I, um, 
I've been in tech for 20 something years now. Um, I started, um, literally at the ground level, like digging trenches and laying cables under buildings and stuff like that. Um, and kind of made my way up, um, in the engineering side of telecommunications and it, um, from that eventually, um, as a senior, um, network engineer on the voice over IP and, um, uh, mobile and radio network side of things. And then, um, from there went into like product, product development, product management, um, marketing and business, the kind of more business exec roles and then out into corporate venture. So I kind of made my way through like the enterprise IT telecommunications side of things. Um, and in each one of those roles, kind of just learning a little bit more about like how a business runs, I guess. Um, and, um, and then eventually stepped out into, um, startup world. Um, I got into web three pretty soon after that. Um, and, um, I'd been following Bitcoin for a while. Um, it was kind of interesting. Um, but what really got me was, um, when Ethereum came along with smart contracts and you could build Mm. these interesting applications, um, that were, were built on community owned infrastructure. And that was like a really appealing idea to me. Um, I, um, didn't get like full time into it until 2016. Um, and, um, I started a venture studio then and called centrality and, um, and what kind of made, kind of pushed me to go full time in web three was, um, meeting with a friend of mine, um, Dr. Luca Muller, who owns, um, a law firm up in, um, Zurich called MME. Um, and MME, um, he was him, he and I were talking down here in New Zealand. Um, and, um, he knew a lot about, um, smart contracts and, um, the Ethereum, ecosystem and stuff like that. And I was kind of surprised like at that time it was a little bit obscure. It wasn't, certainly wasn't mainstream. Um, and I asked him like, how the fuck do you know so much about this like <laughs> obscure technology as a lawyer up in Switzerland? And he was like, you know, well, we helped like the Ethereum foundation come up with their legal structure. And so he like knew everyone uh, at the time that was kind of, you know, his original. Who's who. ones. Yeah, yeah. Who's who. And so, um, I spent quite a bit of time up there meeting people and, you know, going through like what was going on in the scene. And that got me really encouraged to kind of go full time into it. So, so I did. Wait, so we, we, we have very similar actual, actually intro stories. I guess the common under the underpinning theme is Tsug, Crypto Valley. Uh, When I was studying in college, I told my advisor that I want to do my last semester abroad in Switzerland because of all the activity that was happening in Tsug. So I tried finding an internship or some type of work out there. Oh, wow. a, yeah. So I, I lived there for like five, five and a half months and I couldn't awesome. get work because I couldn't get a visa as a, uh, as yeah, a US yeah, expat, which yeah. sucks. But I ended up moving to Austria and was living in Vienna, was working yeah. with like a couple of blockchain IoT startups. So I'm curious because I, I got started, like my segue was around 2017. Okay. Yeah. But every year in crypto is like a, it's like a, it's like a decade. I'm yeah. curious, what was what was crypto like around 2016, 2015? Because around that time, Ethereum sort of came out. I feel like when that launched, all this new energy maybe could have like spurred and sort yeah. of maybe influenced your way as well. 
Yeah, definitely. Like when Ethereum came out, there was like, I think a lot broader activity because you brought in a new um, class of developer, you know, that kind of on that application side, because Bitcoin applications at the time were pretty naff. I mean, probably still pretty naff. Um, but um, but but the developer ecosystem that was building out around Ethereum, and I think even then back then, like some of the, it was starting to kind of get a little bit more into mainstream tech, like kind of understanding and language, like Consensus and Joe Lubin were doing quite a bit of work to like form the Enterprise Alliance and stuff like that. So it was becoming like more vernacular back then. Um, but I think probably um, like any hype cycle around that time, you know, it, there wasn't a lot of deep knowledge as it started to kind of build out mm-hmm. into into more communities. And like it was blockchain is going to solve every problem in the world. And it's like, you right. know, Uber, but on the blockchain, you know, like it was that kind of like um, energy and that built up, I guess, into um, 2000, into 2017's like mania. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it was, it was super high energy and, um, and there was this, like all this kind of, um, rose colored optimism about how fast things were going to happen and how big the change was going to be immediately and all this kind of stuff. Um, but that's good. You need that energy in any market development. You know, if you don't have that, then you can't get past, um, you can't get past like significant hurdles that it, that exist to change anything. I saw the same thing like through my, my tech career when I know like the mobile internet came along, like there was all this, you know, exuberance about what the mobile um, web was going to be, but the actual applications at the time were really shit. Um, and um, you know, the capital that went into all of that, a lot of it was, went nowhere, but some of it went somewhere and now we have what we have. Um, and, um, and cloud computing was the same thing when I, when I, when that first came out, it was like all the skepticism about, you know, right. it was just, it was just your data center and someone else's building and kind of all this kind of, you know, stuff that people were saying about, you know, why it wouldn't work. And, and the infrastructure was pretty crappy and it probably cost as much as it cost to, to run stuff on premise. And, you know, if you'd really did the math and the story wasn't quite there and, and, and then, you know, it progressed and, you know, winners came out of that cycle and we have what we have today. AI was the same, like when AI and machine learning came along, like these are just hype cycles that keep repeating. Right. And we, we, we were in that zone then and probably still are to a certain extent in, in the web three space. So you've, you've been through a lot of hype cycles, whether it be in crypto, outside of crypto, how would you sort of compare your experience in other industries and seeing how, how cycles evolve to this where we are today in Web3? Really, really interesting and different because um, in all of those cycles, you had the same things happening, mm. um, but, um, but the money or the capital associated with those activities was very tightly held amongst you know, VCs and these kind of layers that exist between consumers and technology, right? Um, the massive difference in this cycle, which I think is why the technology has gotten somewhat of a bad rap in the mainstream, is that um, you've connected um, capital directly to 
the activity that happens in the infrastructure and capital flows, you know, with attention. And so you've got this combination of a normal hype cycle um, that has been supercharged by this um, social attention capital life cycle. Um, and, and so we see money moving at the speed of information, which we never got before. And that has positive con, you know, consequences sometimes. Um, you know, for example, if a, if a good idea that may never have got funded, um, mm -hmm. by a VC cause it was like way too out there or didn't right. have a clear path to monetization or something like that. Like some of the great infrastructure and protocols that have been built in web three may never have been funded by a VC. Um, and so this kind of um, flow of capital that's happened in Web3 got those things done. And they're great, like, you know, stepping stones on the journey that we're trying to create for a Web3 infrastructure. Um, on the other hand, you get rugs because people are like, ooh, shiny rock. Woo. Right. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> um, and, so, and so you've got, like, the good and the bad in this cycle. And I don't even think it's now unique to... Um, crypto and web three, like crypto and web three, take all the heat for it. But FinTech has essentially done the same thing for, you know, traditional capital markets as well. We saw this with the Robin hood effect. Um, and so, um, it's just a reality now that, um, you know, consumers are closer to the monetization of technology than they ever have been. And that creates these kind of wild volatile environments. It's just a, I think it's just how things work now going forward. Right. So when you, when you initially got into crypto, did you like, did you get the vision immediately and like went all in, bought a bunch? Like what, what was your initial sort of like reaction actions you took sort of coming in? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I got the, I got the vision. I think, I don't know. I can't remember. ETH might've been $7 at the time. So I bought Jeez. a bunch. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I like, I'm a, I'm a true believer, like in the sense that, um, beyond the financialization of it, the thing that's really appealing to me is, um, society's on this like precipice, I think where, um, where technology has such a big influence over how society operates and increasingly over how society thinks that if, um, the applications and infrastructure that we use and increasingly are reliant upon isn't in the hands of communities, isn't democratized, then society becomes a pretty scary place going forward. And we're at a fork in the road where um, we have the chance to make the choice because um, we aren't being influence to the extent or we, our society hasn't been influenced to the extent and our laws haven't been influenced to the extent that we don't have the opportunity to make the choice. And that will happen. You know, if we keep going on, on the path that we had been, um, we would never have got the choice and we wouldn't even maybe have considered it because the, you know, the mind control machines that exist within social media would have steered, steered us in a different direction. And so, um, so having, um, that is the kind of center for why you're in this space, I think is a really important thing. And it helps you go through the ups and downs and the, the hype and lulls and all the kind of stuff that happens in this, the volatility that happens in the space. Cause the true North is like, can we make a difference for society? That's, and that's a really important thing. 
So let's talk about that. Making a true difference for society, keeping in mind that these mind games that social media currently has, right? And I feel like yeah. it's only going to get even more digital. One thing I know you're, you're very vocal about and you love is the metaverse and the interoperability of the metaverse, right? Yeah. Are we, are we falling deeper or are we falling deeper into, you know, those mind games that you sort of brought up or how do we build a metaverse that's like more kind of like pushing through net positive, you know, emotions, net positive reactions, connections, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, um, but just on that last point, if you, um, if you want to kind of listen to someone talk about what I just talked about, um, there's a, um, a YouTube by, um, Maria Risa, um, okay. which explains this in a more eloquent way, um, than I did, um, and kind of paints a picture of, you know, the facts of survival of democracy itself. <laughs> um, mm. and so, um, so I rec recommended watching that, um, you YouTube, it's a Nobel prize lecture and, um, and goes I'll into include it. Yeah. I'll yeah. include it in the show notes. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so the, so the metaverse, um, I think it's probably helpful to explain what I think the metaverse is first, right. <laughs> um, because there's a, this is another hype cycle and obviously, you know, we're in this kind of, um, information explosion around the met the term in the metaverse now. Um, and so my, my view is the metaverse is made up of a few things. Um, firstly, um, the metaverse exists. It's not something that's coming. It's something that's already here. Um, and, um, the metaverse is the, um, consolidation of user experience silos into a more immersive user experience. That's kind of the first tenant of it. And what I mean by that. So, um, in our kind of digital lifestyle and even not just digital, just kind of our social and economic, um, footprint, we have these silos traditionally like, um, gaming or, um, communications or commerce or media or finance. And they exist in, in these very separate bubbles. You kind of went to do this thing here and then you went to do that thing there and you went to do that thing there. And um, over time, as the internet's been evolving, we've been consolidating those bubbles. Um, and so we had media, which was this thing, TV shows and mm -hmm. you know, broadcasting and all that kind of stuff. And we had communications, telecommunications, where I worked in. Um, they were very distinct worlds, you know, and they, they existed entirely independently of each other. Um, you know, even separate infrastructure at one point, they didn't, you know, the broadcast networks had their own networks, um, which they ran content over. Um, and so, um, and so we saw probably the first major step of the, of the metaverse when social media came about and collapsed communications and media into one thing. And so that became like a step on the journey of, of the metaverse. Mm -hmm. Um, the next you know, kind of step that's an obvious one is that, um, commerce was a separate, you know, user experience. Now we have social commerce. You can, you know, go through a process of being in that social media environment and purchasing without leaving that experience. Um, and so we're going to, we're seeing these kind of further consolidate, um, finance, you know, we, we have like in the mainstream world, um, an example of this would be buy now, pay later. So the social 
commerce experience now has a finance experience bedded in it, um, which is a which is a one click thing. Um, in Web three, we've seen like the the hyper financialization and gamification of um, of everything. You know, that's kind of where the bubble that Web three exists in is kind of like a um, a foretelling of the future of how mainstream is going to kind of move through. And so the metaverse is like about consolidating all of those things. And that's why gaming, I think, comes up so much in metaverse conversations. People say, I'm building a metaverse. Well, no, you're just building a game. Right. Um, and, but, but game, gaming will be the UX for the, for the things that we interact with in our day, daily life. And so it is relevant in the context that this more immersive, less flat internet exists. Um, and that's a gaming type experience, but it's actually just the consolidation of all of those things. So firstly, the metaverse is like the future of our economy. Um, everything we do exists inside of it, and it's much more consolidated user experience than exists today. The next thing that makes the metaverse the metaverse is the metaverse is the collection of interoperable applications, data, and content. And so, um, again, going back to that, I'm building a metaverse. No, you're building an app. Um, mm -hmm. The thing that makes it part of the, the metaverse is if it's open and the content is transportable and the user metadata is transportable and all of the context is transportable. That's what makes it the metaverse. It's where all of these things can interact with each other. Um, and the third thing, probably the most important thing, is um, that the, the metaverse exists at the data layer and not the application layer. And it only exists if the content is built on user owned infrastructure because otherwise it's just a game. We've had those for 20 years. We've had like the ability to, um, you know, buy and change skins and do all that kind of like all the things that happen at that content layer we've been able to do before. The thing that makes the metaverse different is that users can move their data, identity, context, currency between applications. The only way they can do that is if it's on community run infrastructure, because if it sits on someone else's server, you never actually own it. So, you know, no what's interesting, what actually, conditions say they could say, look, hey, you can take your Fortnite avatar over to here if you want to. OK, cool. Awesome. Until they change their mind. And, and if the infrastructure isn't community owned, they can always change their mind. And therefore you can't just take it wherever you want. And so, so, it, so look, I got, I got to come, I got to comment on that though, really quick, because it feels like on that tangent, first of all, blockchains are the metaverse then. So like this yeah. whole concept of data interoperability, like it's going to be built on an open network and an open ledger network. And what Facebook sort of tried to do by commercializing the metaverse as a way to sort of like create this marketing scheme to buy uh, uh, Oculus Rifts, right? To kind of enter mm -hmm. their metaverse, kind of like they just sort of like prove that they can't do that by maybe integrating with Flow and Polygon and all these additional like networks because now they're just a part of the bigger metaverse sort of thing. Yeah, you know what I mean? Am I thinking about this the right way? You can't go into Facebook's metaverse because there is only the metaverse. You can go into Facebook, but with an Oculus Rift, which is what they're built. Right. Um, but the metaverse is the collection of interoperable content and data that exist on user on community owned infrastructure. 
anything else is just your game and you can slap a metaverse title on it, but it isn't the metaverse. So on that same train of thought, a lot of these big web two companies built their resiliency through the data that they hold, right. And the network effects that they were able to create in crypto. If we're going to build for an interoperable network or an interoperable future, right. And you can take your users and your data with you anywhere you go, right. How do you actually build stickiness? How do you build a moat? UX right yeah. now is only so much of a, of, a, of, a, of a privilege, right? But that's going to get better over time. If you're building some type of financial application, then capital could be your moat, right? Liquidity could be your moat. But beyond that, if you're creating like rich experiences, right? Where does, where does a moat, where does the stickiness come the in? Most, this is the most important thing about Web3. And it's the thing that answers your original question before I took okay. this on a tangent. Um, like... If we assume that the metaverse is just the evolution of our society and economy and that eventually everything we value exists inside of that, well, not everything, but like a good portion of what we value and how we interact with what we value exists inside of that. It's really important that consumers are in charge and end users are in charge and that Mm. the technology is democratized because otherwise someone else controls what's important in our world. And that's not a thing that society needs or wants. Um, and so, um, the answer to your question is tied up in that, which is, um, it forces people who are building things to think first about community and share value with the community. Cause if you don't do that as an application developer, then, um, your users can take currency data assets, social graphs right. with them somewhere else. And so your moat is caring about your community and whoever cares about their community and builds with that in mind will create the biggest moat because network effects don't exist in the same way that they used to. Um, you know, you take um, Uber as an example, right? So um there were, I've seen multiple times when, when Uber was in a kind of bad PR cycle where people are like, fuck Uber, delete Uber. Cool. Right. Sweet. Um, but then what? <laughs> right. You know, like next minute you're on the side of the road. It's like, oh shit, I've got to get an Uber. Or like I, sh- I shifted to something else, but they didn't have enough drivers. And so I was mm-hmm. waiting for half an hour. And so I went back. <laughs> to Uber. And the, the problem there is you can say, fuck the app, but you're also saying, fuck the network effect. Right. Um, and, so, and the difference in Web3 is that your network effect is portable. That social graph is portable. And so when we build like the open metaverse operating system within um, the Futureverse, things like the silo protocol enable users to take that social network with them. And um, applications can move their social graphs with them. And so, um, so people really can, you know, at any moment when you're not, thinking and putting the community at the heart of your decisions can move. And that's what you want because that's what creates democracy, you know, in technology is the ability for people to say no. What's up guys. Sorry for the quick pause, but I wanted to tell you about Bello. 
a new blockchain analytics tool I built that helps Web3 native creators and communities learn more about their collectors and their on-chain behavior. Through a simple search, Bellows Intelligence can help you figure out a price for your NFT drop, show you what other communities your collectors are a part of, and empower you with insights to make confident decisions on how to grow your community. I built Bello with you in mind. So as a creator myself, Bellows helped me make money by finding sponsors for the podcast and allowed me to curate better content for you guys. And now it's ready to help other creators too. If you're a Web3 native creator, NFT project founder, or community manager, join the waitlist to try Bellows beta product today by signing up at bello.lol forward slash join. That's B-E-L-L-O dot L-O-L forward slash join. All right, back to the episode. I think another interesting thing that you posted online is on that same tangent is this meme, the you versus the guy she tells you not to worry about. And on the left, it shows Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. And on the right, it shows basically Web3, right? Like all the all the avatars <laughs> and Web3. I think this is like a perfect depiction of, of, of what we just sort of discussed. Yeah. And it sums it up into one image. Um, is there anything else to add on this topic? I mean, I just think I... It, it, it almost beggars belief that you could spend $10 billion or more um, building what Meta has built and, and imagining that that's where people want to spend their time on the internet. And that's who that, and that, and you, and you're the creator of the fake verse Instagram. Um, and, and you still think people want to be themselves online like the whole idea of that is just like farcical to me. If you actually took five minutes to look at, at what was happening in internet culture, you would know that that's not what people want. Um, and, you know, there probably will be plenty of people in whatever Meta is calling the, mm-hmm. the Metaverse Horizons or whatever it is. Um, but they'll probably be your grandma and you'll have to go there. You'll be punished by by society, you know, you have to go there and visit her because she doesn't want to go into be a goblin and in, 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 in fluff world. But, but most people won't want to be there. I mean, we had the Sims already, dude. Like that was like what early 2000s. That was away. basically it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's really funny. Wait. Okay. So another thing that you also talked about was uh, the data layer. A lot of what season six is about is kind of understanding on-chain data also from the perspective of how creators can sort of use on-chain data to build communities. But I think a more interesting conversation just on the tangent that we're on is like the infrastructure layer for metadata, right? And what that looks like at scale. I think mm-hmm. we're just at the at the beginning stages of what an interoperable fan base looks and feels like in Web3. Yeah. We're seeing the emergence of new social platforms really playing on this new primitive, but nothing is at scale yet. Nothing has really hooked a lot of platforms like Lens Protocol, for example, like I think yeah. they're killing it, for example, right? I'm able to take my following, my subscribers everywhere I go. Mm-hmm. Whereas in like Web2, you saw a lot of creators sort of transition from Instagram to then TikTok in 2018, and they lost a lot of their edge, their stickiness. Yeah. And then there was yeah. a new class of creators that emerged. Maybe yeah. that's good. Maybe a refresh is healthy, you know, from time to time. But at the application the- layer. So we can yeah. have that. We can have the refresh at the application layer, and people can bring you functionality to the social graph but you can move your social graph between those applications you know and and actually i think um one of the reasons that was appealing to me in 
um, the early days of Web3 was like building a startup was becoming harder and harder because even if you had, especially in the consumer space, if you had a really good idea and you had um, capital, let's say, and you had a really good team that executed really well, you could do all of those things. And then one of the big social networks could just add it as a feature. Right. And then your business is dead. They used to acquire those things. That's um, what's happening with Be Real right now. The new social course. app. They just added that that feature, right? Exactly. So, yeah. And so so this innovation, especially in that um, consumer and social app space, was being killed because these big guys could test a, a, your whole business on more users than you'd acquired and figure <laughs> out whether it was going to be successful or not. And if it was, it's a new button. Right. And, and bang, your business is dead. Um, whereas if the social graph is portable, then those innovators who come up with these new things have a better chance because the, the network effect can move at the speed of that feature becoming relevant and, um, and give them a chance at winning. It's good for competition. Competition's good for consumers. So on, on that thought then, okay, can you talk more about what ownership really means in Web3 then? So when so there's the, there's the element of being able to co-own a network via the tokens that you hold, mm -hmm. right? And have an mm -hmm. on-chain say, right? In yeah. terms of like how the network progresses. But I think some it's network. just like some, some networks, network. of course, some networks. Others so are just... work, no. Mm -hmm. So Bitcoin and ETH at the moment, although ETH's close to switching. Um, and and, uh, and Ripple's... Ripple's network, no. Um, any ne any network where... Um, well, I guess by network, I meant like the applications. Or validators. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I guess I meant more on like the applications that are built on the network, right? Sure. So through the yeah. governance tokens, for for example. But that's even, that's a better example, right? Like you can't yeah. even really do that right now um, and have a say over the network itself, right? That everything's yeah. built upon, yeah. um, which is a whole nother conversation. But in Web3, when you, when you think about ownership, okay? I, I still think it's a very fuzzy term. And for my audience, the creator audience, right? The people, the musicians, the artists, the PFP creators, et cetera, understanding what ownership means and why you're building a web three, right? That's, I think that's like, that's the secret unlock in my opinion. Yeah. Having access to a level of data to understand who your users, who your users are that you otherwise maybe wouldn't have been able to have in web two is like yeah. the, the, the gold over here. As a project founder yourself, how do you think about on-chain data in the context of owning your audience? And what does that really mean to you as an entrepreneur in the space? Yeah, I, I don't even think... So um, that's a very Web2 way of looking at um, things. And audience is probably the right word to use in that context. So in Web2, you had audiences... Mm -hmm. And you had, and they called them communities, but they weren't, they were audiences and you had ownership of your audience through these, um, you know, through gated, through the gated, the data that exists on gated infrastructure, um, you tracked them and that was your goal. And, um, in web three to be successful as an entrepreneur, you actually have to think about what community means and communities are different to audiences. In, in really interesting and exciting ways. Communities are participants in the thing that you build um, and um, they influence the way that you build them and they have control of certain elements of what you're building, namely um, the data that they're um, contributing to the system. And so um, ownership 
in Web3 is about me being able to move um, my identity, move my Mm -hmm. currency, move my content assets, move my um, social graphs with me between applications. And at that point, you never own a consumer. You only have the privilege of them being in your community. And so the notion of owning a user in Web3 shouldn't exist because the the paradigm flip is that users are in control. And it was we went on an interesting journey to kind of, um, I went on an interesting journey to figure this out. We, we were trying to get businesses to work together um, to share common um, infrastructure for things that applications um often build repetitively over and over again. So if you're investing in a portfolio of companies, let's say um, you put a million dollars out, you know, to those companies in an early stage, they're going to spend 30% of that money building the same things, a login system, you know, a customer management system, right. all of those kind of things that every application needs. And so we were trying to get people to like share those things, because if you did that, then, your cost of capital, you know, cost capital will be more right. efficient and perhaps they could like work together to, you know, onboard customers and overcome some of these chicken and egg market problems that exist when you're starting a new business. And, um, and then we got into this kind of contention of like who owns the customer. Like if I onboard this customer and it's on this common infrastructure, like why, what, you know, why should I give it over to the next guy? Um, and then it like clicked. It's like um, no one owns the customer. The customer owns themselves. And if you, if you, if you have go into it with that mindset, then you open up all these efficiencies that can exist with the application layer. And so, um, so go, going into web through the idea of ownership of audiences, I think is a bad way to approach it. Build communities, um, don't build audiences and users own themselves. Keep those th- things in mind and then you're on a good path. So, that path is and a similar path. It's not just on chain as well. I want to, like, I think we try and solve too many problems on chain in, okay. in the Web3 world. There are other really good ways to um, build infrastructure that are not on chain um, that, that can be user owned. Um, so, a big part of the Futureverse um, data interoperability and asset interoperability is built using the um, DID standards. We've extended the DID standards to work as a kind of SKU system or an API for content as well, not just human identities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so that data doesn't have to live on chain, and it and it probably shouldn't because you want it to be able to scale massively, like internet scale data across you know billions of assets. Um, and users probably shouldn't live on chain, but you can still build it in a way that the users own the infrastructure without going on chain. Interesting. I'm curious how that sort of applies into you building uh, Fluff World in that entire community. Um, what a great project. And so many like sub communities sort of branched out from that, yeah. whether it be in the music NFT space and the art space, movies, sports, the list goes yeah. on and on and on. And what a cool way to sort of just like, create this movement and allow so many people to find alignment within it and then create their own sort of what they imagine it to be right out of their own sheer creativity and their own sheer will. 
talk about that for a minute because it's not easy to do, right? People go on Fiverr and try to create these PFP projects, but you've built, you've built a family, like an online family, right? Of people sort of also what's interesting, curating their own definition of what this could be and making it a reality. Talk, talk to me about that. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, I don't want to say I built it. I, we planted a seed right? and the community built it. Um, and that's, that's really important. Like if you look, if you go and spend time in the Futureverse ecosystem, fluff world, altered state machine, party bears, the seekers, Adam car club, you'll notice that what drives those, um, communities is the members themselves. And we're in this really magical position where we can plant a seed. Um, they take it and they start to be creative with it and we can look at what they're you know, doing creatively and then reflect that back to them in the next version that comes out. So you've got this kind of co-creation that happens um, with us as we evolve the journey, you know, memes or fractions or, um, um, or community built content will pop up that inspires the next evolution of that experience for those members in the community. And they're out building it. They're recruiting new people. They're bringing them in. They're welcoming them. They're making them feel at home. They're introducing them to the content. They're building wikis on how it all works. And so, um, and so, you know, we're lucky. We're fortunate enough to have planted some seeds and shaped the early stages of that environment to allow people to feel um, safe to come in and be creative and to bring others into that environment. But from there, that's that's something the community does, and we keep re-energizing it with their inspiration. Um, and if you can keep that going, then then that's going to change the world. Because like people um, see that layer of what we've been building, um, because it's the the thing that um, is easy to get your head around and grasp. But we've been building the infrastructure that sits below that iceberg for five years now, in order to um, you know, get those outcomes. We talked about changing society. Um, that's really hard work. You can't go on and, you know, be part of a mm-hmm. hype phase and get on Fiverr and create some PFPs <laughs> and make a billion dollars um, and hope to change, change the world next year. That t- to build all that stuff takes a lot of time. Um, and there's been, you know, dozens of people working behind the scenes before we introduce content to the equation um, to make sure that when we go to that next stage, everything underneath there works smoothly and, um, and we can reach more people and we can bring them on and it'll be a good experience for them. The content layer is the funnels to bring people into infrastructure. And so gamifying Web3 infrastructure through content is really what the metaverse is about. So when we caught up behind the scenes, you basically talked about like you have this, this thesis as a builder and an investor. And it sort of falls under the category of one, how can we make it easy to access Web3 tech? And two, what are the funnels that bring in consumers into Web3? And you brought up this interesting Mm -hmm. point of like, we got to move from infrastructure to content. And Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to dig into that for a minute because you're right. I think a lot of the focus, if I'm understanding your thesis correctly, it's like a lot of the infrastructure plays, like people focus too much on the Web3 this, NFT that right? And less about like the benefits yeah. of what it could actually unlock, right? Yeah. Are you feeling the same way? And can you talk more about that? Yeah, I think like our job is to make the technology feel like magic, you know, like people know 99% of the world doesn't actually know how email works. 
And that's cool because that's the way it should be. And um, in Web3, we kind of shove it in your face. You know, I was talking with a, um, a game studio today that um, was had gone through a backlash. They built, you know, building this game out and um, were starting to, to market it. And they, the, you know, the gamer, the anti-NFT gamer fraction um, on their latest, you know, social justice cause um, came in and started torpedoing, torpedoing this project. Really great team of people building with really great motivations, actually building cool stuff. Um, but because NFTs and crypto was in, in, you know, in the face of those um, consumers, it became about that, not about the cool things they were doing. And we get like super zealous about infrastructure in a way that I think is unhealthy for, um, for mass adoption. It's, it was useful in the early cycles because that you needed that zealotry to um, get past an inflection point where this become became went from an idea to a thing to a reality. We're at that point now, and now we need to start making it invisible to consumers. And so, um, you know, when you onboard into Netflix or whatever, um, no one knows what cloud infrastructure sits behind <laughs> the scene, scenes here, and you know whose data center they're using, and you know all the protocols that go into making payments work and use, you know, user logins and profiles work. No one cares and they shouldn't have to. And, um, and our job as technologists is to make the technology invisible to them. And that's been the focus of our work over the last five years is how can you make the technology feel like magic and give consumers an experience that they couldn't have before, you know, make them surprise them in that process. And then slowly, you know, like a Trojan horse, educate them about things like um, personal property ownership. Okay, now you can do these things that you weren't able to do before. Um, and that means that you can try these new experiences or you can have more control over, you know, your information online and those kinds of things. But just don't, don't like shove it in their face, like give them something cool to play with and then expose the infrastructure over time as opposed to going in and saying, Hey, web three, NFTs, blockchains, blah, 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 smart contracts. Whoa, fuck off, man. Yeah. I'm just trying to have a coffee. Here. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a solid way to put it. I think on that too is the second point is how can we make it easy to access web three tech? And that sort of falls under the category of how to solve the UX problems. And this is sort yeah. of the next conversation I want to have with you is understanding the current state of like UX in web three um, and what are the biggest mistakes that you see people making today and some of the best practice practices you've seen sort of happen in real time? Yeah, I think like a, the, the personification of this, I, I think was, um, when, I, when GameStop launched their NFT marketplace mm -hmm. and, and they kind of set out this, you buy an, buy an NFT in eight, eight easy steps. And I couldn't tell if it was ironic or not. We've had one account for like 20 years with Amazon. So, um, so the idea that that's what it takes to onboard a consumer is just <laughs> and eight easy steps. Cool. <laughs> let me book. Let me book a day out in my diary to go do that. Um, so, so, so I think that's the biggest thing is we need to make those initial onboarding funnels simple. Um, and feel like, you know, 
signing up to, you know, signing up to Amazon or whatever. Um, and, and there's two ways that that is being done currently. One is through centralized exchanges. So they have a kind of a, you know, web two-ish experience. Um, and the other way is to um, build some cool protocols that you can do it natively within web three. Um, the, the first way is, is a valid way to onboard people into the space. Um, but I think, um, it's not flowing through to, um, to the real outcome that we want with web three, which is users are directly interacting with infrastructure themselves. And so, um, if you look at the number of people who own cryptocurrency versus the number that have interacted with DeFi. And we say like, you know, crypto users who own cryptocurrency are early adopter mindset people, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, they're risk takers probably more than the general population. Um, own less than 5% of those people have interacted with the DeFi application. Crazy. So of an early adopter set, of a risk taking set, We've, we've managed to convince less than 5% of the users to actually migrate to interacting directly with Web3 infrastructure. And so um, content has the opportunity, if we do it right, to change that. I think if you look at um, within our ecosystem, the way that Silo is um, gamifying the underlying infrastructure of that communications protocol um, is a really good example of how it should be done. And since launching the seekers and gamifying um, the first stages of running a node in the network, we've seen 400% more, more individuals running nodes in the network. And so, um, so turning participation in web three into a game, I think is a really good way for us to get more people involved with participation in the infrastructure and directly interacting with the applications on, on these networks. Um, and that's super important because if we don't get everyone or a large portion of society interacting directly, and we're just going to create new middlemans so and those, those problems we have today, would just be in the hands of a new set of people. So maybe the same set of people. <laughs> yeah. One thing you keep bringing up the keyword of funnels, right? Can you, can you sort of yeah. elaborate more on what you mean by funnel as a, as like a podcaster, I have marketing tendencies. I think of like a marketing funnel to convert someone, right? That's the first yeah. thing that comes to, are you defining that uh, as a similar way or cause you're linking user experience with a better funnel, which very much in my definition sort of links yeah. as well. Can you elaborate on that as well? Yeah, so um, so fu a funnel. Um, if we look at kind of the sets of funnels that maybe exist within an ecosystem like ours, um, you've got the content itself as a funnel. Mm -hmm. People can interact with that and just interact with the content, and then be pulled into interacting with the applications and in infrastructure. Um, a funnel is the community, so you know, people in, in the community can interact with other people and they can pull them into, um, you know, into the infrastructure through those interactions. And then um, increasingly for us, um, looking at audiences. So this is um, existing 
audiences that exist within the Web2 con, 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 context um, for products or content that exist within the Web2 contents. How can we use those existing IP um, that have that audience and convert them into community members by taking something they already know and love and are interacting with and giving them a new experience with that? So, um, so that's when, in my mind, when I'm talking about funnels, it's talking about using things that are less um, confronting or more um, familiar to users as a way to get them into the community and then into being part of the inf infrastructure mm -hmm. and application. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So... Another thing we talked about behind the scenes is part of the of the funnel is it kind of splits into various categories. So like there's a mass market media funnel, the movie IP funnel, yeah. Um, yeah. there's the, the sports funnel, music funnel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All which sort of encompass the entire vision of the fluff ecosystem, yeah. right? And I think you guys have built such an incredible team, just like doing just very brief research on who you guys are and what you guys have put together you've sort of branched out to all these different channels and integrated the IP in such an interesting way that it's kind of hard to miss now. Yeah. How, how I have think, you done um, that? Like how, how, how have you guys managed to sort of tackle all those different angles, but also ensure that the community has a voice in it at the same time without neglecting yeah. what people want, but also ensuring that like, you know what I mean? It's such like a, it's such, it's a, it's a vehicle that's moving in many different directions yet. I don't know. I'm baffled. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't say that like every decision we make is the right decision, sure. but every decision we make is with the right motivations. And, um, and you know, this is still highly experimental and I can't say that we've like absolutely cracked the nut, but we have been thinking about it for a long time and we've, we've been thinking about it quite deeply. And so, um, so what appears to be, you know, a short time frame for a lot to happen actually isn't. Um, and, um, and building up these kind of um, networks of connections and, and people has taken years to achieve. And then those people are great people and they can start to, you know, bring people and show them what we're doing. And when we show them what we're doing, they get excited because it feels and looks different. And so that creates the opportunity to go and work with some of the world's biggest brands in each one of those categories and, and start to say, Hey, you know, what, despite what you've heard or seen about, um, you know, crypto culture, um, this is actually the future. And there is a way that you can do this that is authentic and organic and real. Um, and, um, and when you have that conversation and show that to these people, they, 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 they start to be believers and then you can bring them on the journey with you and, and take stuff they've been working on for a long time and um, give it a new edge and give the ability for consumers to interact with that content in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, content, content is king is, was a, is, a, is often a phrase that's used and it really is. If we, if you're talking about, you know, bringing people into infrastructure it always has been content. You think about, um, you know, those different hype cycles along the way, um, you know, starting from the internet, like content drove uptake of the internet, content drove uptake of social media, content drove uptake of cloud computing, uh, content dr is driving consumer interaction with artificial intelligence. You're seeing this with mid journey and, 
and um, Dali and now, you know, thingies on the way, like all of these mediums um, for engaging consumers are content driven um, experiences. And so we picked the content buckets that um, we think are important to the future and gone out and got the world's best partners in each one of those to work with them to come up with um, ways to, you know, pull those users in. It's actually quite fascinating. I think on that topic too, I know we only have, we only have so much time left. Um, I wanted yeah. to ask you a couple uh, quick rounds and ask you some things from yeah, Twitter cool. that people uh, kind of commented on when I tweeted that I'm interviewing you. Okay. So the first thing is yay or nay on CC zero community commons license. Are you for it? Are you against it? What are your thoughts? I mean, we, so our view and the view we've taken is that, um, uh, for any content that we produce, that's our first party content. If you own the NFT, you own the content and you can go and use that and monetize it. Um, the only caveats we put on that is don't be a Nazi. Don't be a pedo basically. Um, and, um, and as long as you're, um, not doing those things, have at it. And it's, um, it's a, it's a, it's another piece of the magic of web three in the metaverse because, um, ownership, and we talked about this right at the beginning, ownership is the thing that defines the metaverse as being different from what we've had in web two. So without it, then, then, um, you, you can't create, um, the, the open metaverse effect that we want. And also as a creator, um, there's a, there's much, the thing that drives these collections forward is um, the community's activity. And they wouldn't be invested in doing that if they didn't own it themselves. Angel Baby would never have existed if Hume couldn't own Angel Baby. And so if you don't, um, if you don't take that approach, I don't think you can be calling yourself part of this movement. Mm -hmm. You have to give, users control of content so that they can go and create the community around it in the olden days um it, the, in order to be successful in content and ip you had to be a monopoly because it's difficult to wrangle contracts and collect money and do all the things that are necessary to make it worthwhile investing and building that content in the first place and so you then tend to only contract with a small number of parties and that can constrains you know, contracts, the industry into a small number of people who control it. Smart contracts open the door for you to put content out there for others to take and build on top of it. And that monetization process that happens in the background keeps feeding your ability to make more content without having to be a monopoly. And so we can scale down the, you know, the types of people that can participate in the content economy and make it worthwhile hmm. because of ownership, because community wouldn't be involved in it if they didn't own it. So I remember when, uh, what's the project, uh, Moonbirds sort of announced that they're going the CCO <laughs> model. There's a lot of backlash around that. Um, can you share the critics point of view and why so many are not in favor of the CCO model? Um, it's a good question. What is the critics view? What do you think the critics view is? Um, 
I saw a couple tweet threads kind of talking about if everybody can use it, then it kind of loses its value. Yeah, it loses its value. Yeah. But on the con- on the contrary, though, I I was in Cabo, okay, over the weekend, and there's this con- there's this uh, uh, model, uh, old old vintage model that people. She has like the unibrow. I forgot her name, but everybody yeah. knows her for her unibrow, and people use that yeah. and commercialize that. And like the more recognizable it is, the more it, it's placed, right? The more it's used, the more valuable it sort of becomes, right? But it, it, it builds yeah. it builds brand equity. I don't know if you could tie like financial value to it necessarily it brand recognition, recognition. Not always branding okay but but i think um i mean it's hard for me to be a critic on the other side and that is probably the only reasonable argument i've i've heard which is which is does it dilute the brand value or the brand equity and um, might increase brand recognition but does it dilute um value and equity that's the that's the conversation the critics have um I just don't even think it's a starter. Like if you're wanting to build an authentic web three way to not have community ownership of the content. Um, if otherwise, otherwise just go build like something in the, you know, Fortnite mm-hmm. or some other like captured walled garden environment. It's much easier. You'll have more users able to onboard easily, you know, VCs, bucket of VCs that'll invest in it is higher. Like if you don't actually believe in community ownership of infrastructure and, um, and participation from a uh, community perspective and developing IP, then just go build somewhere else. Mm. Um, yes, people are right that there is only so much, um, that can be done with that IP before it starts to lose some of its shine. You can't be Lamborghini and Toyota. Those, you know, you can't be both of those things mm-hmm. to to consumers. And if more and more people are building on your your IP, um, and it was premised on the idea of being Lamborghini, and it tries to transition to being Toyota, that may be a bad path for it to go through. Um, and so, um, so it's a viable criticism if the goal is to create assets that are worth half a million dollars each if the goal is to create lamborghinis then yes you might have dilution because of community ownership if the goal is to create um you know a thriving community of entrepreneurs that are successful in their own right then it's the only option interesting Interesting. Okay. All right. All right. Um, all right. Next question. Okay. This one comes from, um, trying to find it. All right. This one comes from Max Poker 247. He's like, ask him about the size and technical capability of the teams working on the Futureverse. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, at least 200 people working on this and, um, and really, really great people, um, experts across protocol development, infrastructure, security, um, you know, content engineering, content design, um, game development, game engineering, you know, you name your favorite piece of movie or game IP. And we've got leaders from those businesses working for us. Um, and, um, and it's one of our superpowers, actually, people kind of look at what, 
has happened over the last 12 months and like how the hell did you do all of mm-hmm. that well it's because we've we've been around for a while and we've managed to get this shit hot team that that you know is crazy good at what they do so um yeah the whole future verse is powered by this engine of amazing minds and 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 great people who are experts in each of those respective fields okay amazing that's all i have for you aaron uh this was a really great conversation thank you for your time before i let you go where can we find you and all the tags that you have in your twitter bio all the projects that you're working on (laughs) yeah so just um aaron mcdnz at at, at, on twitter is probably the best place to find me it's where i spend more of my time and um you can you can reach out there if you want and uh and follow along with what we're doing amazing we'll have to do this again soon thank you so much till next time yeah totally what's up guys thank you for listening if you've gotten this far then you are a champ and i owe you a free listener pin go to adamlevy.io forward slash nft fill in your info and i'll distribute the nft towards the end of the season by collecting your pin you prove your contribution to the season and get exclusive access to content allow lists and more so be sure to collect yours also please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening this helps me out so much And finally, hit me up on Twitter at LevyChain. I want to hear what you're building, the latest crowdfund you're trying to complete, or if you simply want to chat. I love talking about where crypto meets the creator economy, and it's no different if it's coming from you directly. So thanks again for your support. It means the world, and I'll see you on the next episode.